Let's take our Bibles. We're going back to John chapter 20 this evening. John chapter 20. Uh, I want to give you a lesson tonight, or a message tonight, entitled Lessons from the Linens. Lessons from the Linens there in John chapter 20. Um, This will be the first time I've ever preached on this topic or this thought, although I've heard several messages and I've heard some individuals mention some things about the linens uh, found there in the tomb. And I have no doubt some of you have heard messages uh, or someone mentioned these through the years. Um, I read seven different sources on the linens uh, that I had, uh, books and some notes, and not really many people uh, uh, went after this thought or expounded much on it. And um, this evening, I, I want to emphasize that I don't want the focus to be on the illustration, but the lessons that can come from the illustration. I can't prove to you tonight that this is actually what the Lord meant by these things, but I think, again, there's some lessons to be learned from it. Uh, let's read our, the first ten verses again, the same text we read this morning, verses 1 down through verse 10. Uh, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. They ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down, looking in, and saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead, Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for the faithfulness of these people and those that are watching us on live stream tonight. We know it's been a busy few days and many have had guests and family and big dinners today, Lord. But Lord, we pray just for the next few minutes, God, we could focus on your word and Lord, that we'd let you minister to our hearts and challenge us, Lord. Lord, we want everything that's again said and done to bring honor and glory to you. So please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I do like how John outlines this for us or reminds us as he writes this uh, about their journey back to the tomb. Uh, Mary has found John and Peter and told them that the tomb's empty. We don't know where Jesus is. And they both, I don't know, I guess they didn't believe her or wanted to go see it for themselves. They take off for the tomb. And, uh, I don't know if this is the fa- fa- uh, a fact, but it seems John wants to let us know he beat Peter to the tomb. Uh, he was faster. Some have said he was probably a younger man and maybe a little more energy. But then we see Peter just come busting through, right? Uh, John's looking into the tomb, and I can just see Peter knocking him out of the way, and, and he goes right into the tomb. Now, again, uh, a tomb would be... Um, uh, where they were buried, it's not like buried in the ground, but it was in a side of a hill, most likely. And something had been, uh, uh, that, 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 that wall of dirt had been dug out and, and prepared, and inside there it was uh, 
typically there would be some type of a platform built into the, into the side of that hill where the body would lay on that and then they would, uh, they would close it back up with a stone or some type of structure to, to, to keep it closed. And so they've walking into this tomb, going in there, and as they're walking in, verse 6 says, Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, verse 7 especially, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. To help us understand these linen clothes, go back to chapter number 19. And let's start in verse number 38. And read down through the end of that chapter, 38 through 42. It says, And after the, this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight, then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and then the garden a new sepulcher wherein, he was, ne- wherein net- net was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Jews, presenta- preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So these two men, and I, and I love this passage of scripture uh, because I have, a, I have a, uh, an affinity, a, a likeness of Nicodemus. Uh, I like him. I like him from John chapter 3 on. I like that he was searching and he was looking. And, uh, and I'm grateful for John chapter 19 because I believe it shows me that he uh, uh, eventually does identify himself with Jesus Christ. I, I believe that he recognizes him as the Messiah. In fact, it says that they brought about 100 pounds of these ointments, of these spices and aloes, uh, aloes to be placed upon the body of Jesus. Uh, in our modern weighing system, in our English weighing system, it would be about 65 pounds of, uh, of spices. And that was the amount that would be given to a king's burial. Nicodemus recognized Jesus as king. And, uh, and he was willing to identify himself with them. Both Joseph and Nicodemus willing to identify themselves with Jesus Christ. And it even identifies Joseph here as a, a, a secret follower of Jesus. And I wonder, though, if they both wish that they would have identified themselves sooner with Jesus. You know, when a person gets saved, they often will say something like this. Why didn't I do this sooner? Why didn't I get this taken care of sometime earlier? And I wonder if Nicodemus and Joseph may have had some regrets and some remorses that, boy, why didn't I come out and follow Jesus sooner? What could have I done for him while he was yet alive? Yet we see these men taking down the body of Jesus. You'll see on our cross that we have up this weekend there that, that, uh, that, that linen that's wrapped around there. And uh, what they would often do is when that person was on the cross, and someone was taking the body down, they would wrap that linen underneath their arms and tie it on that cross so when their hands were released from the cross, when they pounded out those nails from behind or pried them out or even sometimes having to pull the hand through the nail, no longer was that supporting them, but that linen would hold them there. And the body would not just fall. 
And so they were removing his body. They would have brought it down, and then they would have washed the body. They would have taken time to cleanse it as best as they could. Now, you remember they were in a rush because of the feast that was coming. And so there may have been a, a, a quick job, but there would have been a preparation of the body by washing it. And then they would have anointed the body with these spices and then wrapped it with these linen strips. I don't know if they would be the same that they would have used in Egypt, what we're used to seeing with the mummy, but something similar to that, wrapping the body. Do you remember the account in John chapter 11 where Nicodemus has been dead for four days? Jesus says, remove the stone. And uh, you remember when Martha said, Lord, don't remove the stone. He's been dead for four days. And what does she say? Surely he stinketh. And that's what the spices were for. They did not embalm the bodies, and so the bodies began to decay immediately. And so even after just a few days, there would be the smell of death, and they tried to cover that with these spices. You also recall that when Lazarus did come forth from the grave and he made his way out, what did Jesus say? Loose him from these clothes, uh, or from these linen clothes, from these, the, these strips that are around him and remove them. And so this would be the way that the body of Jesus was prepared. And so he's placed in this tomb, his body is anointed, and he's wrapped in these linen strips. And then they would take a separate uh, piece of garment, and here it's our scripture, it's called a napkin, and they would have wrapped that around the face of this individual. Now, one of the concerns of the Roman government was that one of the disciples or the disciples of Jesus were going to steal the body of Jesus. And that would be their claim that he was risen from the, from the dead. During this time, uh, I don't even know what the value of this would be, but there were grave robbers. That was a common practice. That's why they would roll large stones in front of these things. And so there was the fear of of someone stealing the body of Jesus. So they put this large stone, they put an armed guard there. But you know when Peter and John went into that tomb, they did not see a, a tomb that has been ransacked. They did not see something that has, someone was trying to get in quickly and get out. In fact, if it was someone stealing the body of Jesus, do you think they would have taken the time to take him out of his grave clothes? No, they're going to grab the body and they're going to depart. Uh, I praise the Lord that I've never had my house broken into. Uh, perhaps some of you may have had that and you may have had to experience this, but I've had a, my car broken into before. I remember getting into my car once and, and started driving down the road and I looked over on the passenger floor and there was papers strewn everywhere. I said, what in the world? And I noticed there were tape cassettes everywhere. This was a long time ago. We had tape cassettes then. And I said, what is going on? And I realized someone had gotten into my glove box and had rummaged through there, and they left nothing in order. What rude thieves, right? They got in and got what they wanted. They didn't care what it looked like. But when Peter and John went into this tomb, everything was in an orderly fashion. Now, we'll learn in John chapter 21 and, and chapter 20 and 21 that Jesus comes and appears multiple times after his resurrection and he's not bound by anything that would keep him from going into rooms. He just walks through walls, goes in there, and in his resurrected body, those grave clothes, unlike Lazarus, had no binding on him. 
he just went through them. He transported himself through those, and the linen wrappings laid there and remained where he had them. But then we have this napkin. This napkin that was wrapped around his face. John is careful to point out, to highlight it in verse 7. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. This is the part of the message where, where I've heard some people preach on it and refer to this. I searched for it. I didn't find a lot on it other than just a mention here and there. But the thought of this, has anybody heard a message on this, by the way? The, the linen napkin around the face, so you know where I'm going. The idea here is that, that this napkin was taken by Jesus and, and he wrapped it or folded it in a specific manner and placed it in a place distinct and by itself. And perhaps that when Peter and John looked in there and saw the linen clothes lying and empty and then looked over to another area and saw this, this facial napkin wrapped in a specific manner, that there was a message in that. I can't prove that to you this evening. I can't say that's exactly what happened or what was intended. But here's the thought behind it. It was in the Jewish custom that at dinner, uh, the master of the house would sit at the head of the table and there would be servants waiting to serve, uh, standing off to the side. They would have their supper, their, their food and their meal and at the conclusion, when, uh, if the master uh, was done, he would just wad up his napkin and put it on the plate. And that was a sign to the servants that they're done and you can come in and, and clear the plates or whatever it was. But if he wanted to stay for a while, he would fold that napkin in a specific way, lay it on the plate, and it meant that I'm not finished. I'm coming back. Don't clear the plates. There was a message in the way that he folded the napkin. And perhaps that was the thought here, that Jesus was saying, hey, I'm not finished. I'm coming back. There's still work for me to do. Now, it may be a stretch to say that the folded napkin in the tomb of Jesus was placed in that fashion to deliver this message, that he's not finished. But it is true that he's not finished. It is true there's still some work to be done. And it is true that we serve a risen Savior. And for that reason, we ought to say there's still work to be done. And so let me just give you three quick thoughts. And uh, we'll let us go out a little early this evening. But I want us to consider some things here this evening that God's not finished with yet. I want us to get this first one, and I trust, although I won't preach long on it, I trust that your heart will be touched by this. God is not finished wanting to see people get saved. Amen. You know, Second Peter tells us in, the, in his letter that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is God's desire for people to turn to him. Is God desire that people would choose him and desire to be, uh, for him to be their savior? My heart was burdened this morning. Great crowd in our church service this morning. Um, 
many visitors, a, a bigger than normal crowd, obviously, and many unsaved, no doubt. And I wonder how many that their hearts were touched and burdened about, about salvation. And, and, and would there be any that would respond? I had one person come out and tell me that they, that they feel like the Lord's tugging on their heart, and I thank God for it. I had one person raise their hand this morning that, that their hearts burdened about, uh, about their salvation. But wouldn't it have been wonderful to see a half dozen people, a dozen people say, hey, I need to be saved. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful to see some people walk the aisles? Wouldn't it be wonderful for us to, to get to know our neighbors and our co-workers and to tell them about the great love of God and to see them desire to be saved? Wouldn't it be wonderful for them to look at us and to see the way God is blessed in our lives and say, I want what they have? Listen, we live in a day and age where it seems like it's getting harder and harder to see people want to be saved. Is that part of the days of the times we live in? I don't know. But I do know this, we should not quit working at it. Amen. We should still be, in fact, we ought to work harder at it. Uh, it's more difficult perhaps than it was 30, 40 years ago. Perhaps we don't see the numbers that we did once years ago. And so therefore, maybe we ought to work harder. Because God still wants to see people saved. That verse is still true. It doesn't, it doesn't stop in our lifetime just because it's harder. God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And I would challenge you again, church, I've said this multiple times since this year has started. What if we all could just reach one person or one family this year? What an amazing thing that would be to see dozens and dozens of people get saved through the work and efforts of God's people here at Heritage. But it's not going to happen if you don't put that effort into it. We had our guest speaker here just several weeks ago, Brother Jeremy Rowland. Do you remember what he, what he emphasized multiple times on that morning message? That it took four invites before he came to church. And that family would not let him go, would not quit uh, uh, pursuing him and pestering him even. In far, to the point where he finds like, I'm just going to go to get them off my back. And when he, got, when he finally agreed, the Lord got a hold of his heart. And I think sometimes we, and myself included in this, we give up too easily. Someone says, ah, I'm not interested. Okay, well, I did what I was supposed to do, and we, and we walk away from it. Church, let's be persistent. Let's be uh, 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 consistent in this. And would you pray with me that we see people saved for his honor and glory? Amen. God is not finished in wanting to see people saved. I'll give you a second thought this evening. God is not finished wanting to see people get right with God. One of the characteristics of this church age that we're in, the Laodicean church age, is lukewarmness. Neither cold nor hot. Do you remember what the book of Revelation says about the lukewarm church? What Jesus' attitude was about that church? About lukewarmness? He says, I would rather you were cold or hot but because you are lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. It's a, it's a very graphic description, isn't it? It's one that's a gagging reflex. It's, a, it's the idea that it makes him ill to see a person that is not neither cold nor hot. Now, obviously, the Lord wants us to live for him. 
wants us to be on fire for him. But what we're seeing in this day and age and what we struggle with here is just a lukewarmness. We couldn't say that you're, uh, you're, you're just absolutely wicked and involved in every ungodly thing and a, and a reprobate. We don't, not necessarily that, but not on fire for the Lord either. We've gotten very comfortable and very casual about our Christianity. And it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. I think it's very difficult for us to stay in that condition very long because I think you'll find yourself declining in your Christianity, declining in the way you live for the Lord. I believe as this Laodicean church age, we're very near the Lord's return. Wouldn't it be wonderful that when the Lord returns that he finds you on fire for the Lord, finds you working hard for the Lord, finishing strong for the Lord? What an embarrassment would be for him to find us not serving him. In fact, we believe this, the Lord's return is imminent, correct? It means he could come back at any moment. Would you have been embarrassed last week at some point in time if the Lord would have come back on a particular day and time of your life? Something that we were involved when, the, uh, the way we were living our lives, would that have been of an embarrassing moment to be, to, for him to have come back at that moment? And to realize this week he could come back at any moment. And he needs to find us living and striving to live for the Lord. Oh, God wants us to get right with him. What a great time to rededicate our lives and to be recommitted to, to our walk with the Lord. And I'd encourage you to examine yourself this evening, to look within and be honest and say, am I where I need to be? Has there been times in my life when I've been uh, stronger in my walk with the Lord? Has there been times in my life when I was uh, uh, in, in a greater relationship with the Lord and fellowship with the Lord? If we've declined in that, let's strive back for that and get right with God. God's not finished seeing people saved. God's not finished seeing people get right with him. And God's not finished in answering prayers. Again, prayer is something we've been emphasizing here recently. And I recognize and believe in the importance of prayer, that nothing great is going to happen for God without God's people asking for the Lord's blessing on it. We've, in our men's prayer meeting, just recently had a great testimony and several devotions on importunity and continually asking and being faithful to ask. But simply, it begins in prayer. We're trying to give you opportunities to pray. Corporately, a Wednesday evening Bible study and prayer meeting, a Tuesday ladies Bible study and prayer meeting, Saturday men's prayer meeting. A 24-hour prayer chain, specifically to come and pray for our church and the needs of our church for our upcoming revival. I went and counted this afternoon, and as of this afternoon, perhaps more have signed up or even crossed their names out, but there were 89 people signed up for this coming weekend of prayer. And I'm grateful for that. But there's room for more. Well, you say all the slots are filled up. It doesn't matter. Put your name on the end of one of those slots. Come and join some other people and pray. Uh, pray at home. But let's bathe this time in prayer. And some of you say, an hour of prayer. How could I ever pray for an hour? And I promise you, either you're going to fall asleep and it's going to go quickly, or you're going to pray and it's going to go quickly. <laughs> I hope you don't fall asleep. 
But it will. It'll go quickly. It'll be amazing how quickly time goes when you get into fervent prayer. And I'd encourage you, God blesses those that pray. God desires to hear from us. God desires to have a communion with us and be a praying people. I mentioned the other day that uh, we don't pray enough. We just don't. And I'm convicted often even on our Wednesday night services and we take maybe 10 or 12 minutes for prayer and I wonder, boy, what if we took a whole hour? What would the people do if we said, hey, tonight's just going to be a prayer meeting? Other places I've been, I've had, we've, we've tried to emphasize prayer and people just quit coming on those nights. They don't see it as an important thing. And I don't, I'm not saying because those places were any less spiritual, I think we'd have probably the same situation here. If we were just going to emphasize prayer, it'd be a low-attended service. And it shouldn't be that way, church. God wants us to pray. God wants to answer our prayers. And so let's make it, with this idea that God's not finished answering prayers. Let's ask him for some big things. Let's ask him for some things that only God could do. I love to pray that way. I said, God, would you do something this morning that only you can do? That it would never be mistaken. Oh, Pastor Carpenter sang a great, or sang a, uh, preached a good message. <laughs> And Brother Gilbert led great music and all those things and where it would highlight us. And I said, God, do it in such a fashion that people would know that was God. And that only happens if we ask God to do it. And we pray for God to do that. And so, church, would you realize God wants to answer prayers? He's not finished answering prayers, but you've got to pray. Listen, whether this thing of the napkin is true or not, I don't know. But I do know this. God's not finished yet. He wants to do some things. He'd love to see people get saved right here at Heritage. Would you work that way? He'd love to see some of us, you, that need to be, trying not to point anybody specifically, get right with God. Get closer to God. And he'd love to see us become stronger, more fervent, more consistent in prayer. Because God's not finished yet. He wants to do some things. Let's let our church be a place. Let's be some individuals that can let that happen here at Heritage. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this evening? The Lord's touched your heart, burdened your heart. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond this evening. What a great day on an Easter Sunday to just rededicate yourself to the Lord. Say, God, I, I want to get closer to you. Maybe you need to say that you're not even backslidden or away from God. Just you have a desire to get closer to Him. You have a desire to see people be saved. You have a desire to see God answer your prayers. Lord's touched your heart and burned your heart in any way. You respond this evening. Lord, take this invitation. Lord, use it for your honor and glory. Help us to be obedient to you in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed as the piano begins to play. The Lord spoke to your heart. You respond this evening. There at your pew or here at the altar.